here. What's going on? We interrupt our regular evening schedule to bring you the following special program. Across mankind. Come in, Sky Captain. A bold flying ace. This is Sky Captain. I'm on my way. One intrepid reporter. What's this all about? He's coming for me. Who's coming? And a courageous naval officer. What have you got me into this time, Joseph? Nothing you can't handle, Frankie. Are all that stand between the enemies of the future and the world of tomorrow. Captain, this is Dex. Do you read me? Come in. Hang on, Dex. I'm a little busy. Jude Law. Hold on. Gwyneth Paltrow. Can't anything ever be simple with you? And Angelina Jolie. It's a pleasure to finally meet the competition. No! I see it! Sky Captain and the world of tomorrow. That was a movie trailer for this week's Dare to Dream, episode number 405 of Trek, Trek in, in Sci-Fi. Sci Greetings, Treks and Sci-Fi fans. This is Dave, or Dave Kill on the forums. And I've got a rather remarkable story to share with you. But first, I'd like to give a big thanks to Rico for lending me his captain's chair again to guest host the show. This story that I submit for your consideration is the dream of a young sci-fi and comic book fan that started out as a small, no-budget fan film and became a multi-million dollar Hollywood movie released in September of 2004. Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow is a quirky science fiction action-adventure. It is sort of like Buck Rogers meets the Maltese Falcon, set in an alternate universe of 1939 that includes giant robots, ray guns, and rocket ships. And the man possessed by his dream is Carrie Conran. I suppose you could say Carrie is remarkable because, well, because he started out as such an average guy. Growing up in Flint, Michigan during the 70s, Carrie and his brother Kevin often enjoyed Sunday afternoons watching old RKO and MGM movies on TV. Also as a youngster, Carrie began making his own Super 8 movies, and years later, with the advent of desktop computer animation and video editing, he devised the idea of an even bigger film combining live actors with virtual backgrounds. Maybe not so unusual considering the number of fan films you see on YouTube today, but this was 1994, still years away from fast computers and cheap digital cameras. Once committed to this project, his nerd passion would take over his destiny and propel him higher than even he could imagine. To create this new world of tomorrow, Carrie enlisted the help of his brother Kevin, who is really a talented illustrator, and a few of their friends to stand in as actors. 
Carey then set up a small blue screen studio in his apartment living room and began to capture his vision that was maybe easier to imagine than to film. In this story, a daredevil pilot and his ex-flame chase flying robots and the evil genius who created them from a dark and gritty Manhattan to a technicolor Shangri-La. So how do you do all that in your living room? Well, given the locations, Kerry created his virtual backgrounds in Photoshop, then used Electric Image, an early 3D program, to model props, airplanes, and giant robots for his scenes. Adobe Premiere to capture and edit video, and the first release of After Effects to composite this world, as he slowly rendered it all out on an ancient Macintosh 2 CI. You know, even with the help from his brother, this was a lot of work for one guy. His original plan was to make a feature-length seven-chapter serial. But after four years, when he looked up from his desk, upgraded by then to a Macintosh Quadra 840AV, he had only generated six minutes. Kerry later remarked that by then he had absolutely no life and was often tempted just to give up on this project. I really intended to make the entire film. It was just after four years, only six minutes had been generated, so it was going to take me 20 years to finish the film. Now, what he had created was pretty unique, and when Marsha, who is a movie producer and college friend of Kevin's wife, saw it, she was impressed by its scope and ambition. They said, okay, well, we finished the short, and Carrie said, but... I haven't finished the script, so I don't want to show you the short until I've got the script. And I said, oh, come on. I mean, you have the short here. You've been talking about this for two years. Let me see it. You know, I'm thinking I'm probably going to hate it. So it doesn't matter if there's a script or not, you know, I mean, because you never know. But anyway, um, he sh we sat down and he pushed play on this and this image came up. And I thought, wow, this is cool. And then it kept going and going. And I mean, I finished watching the short and I thought, what the hell was that? And then I looked at Carrie and I said, can I see it again? And he said, sure. And so he showed it to me again. And I, and I kept trying to imagine how he had done this in his apartment because it was huge in the scope of it. I knew that it was different and I knew that it was cool and I knew that I, you know, that I thought this guy could probably make an interesting movie. Marsha referred the Conrad brothers, Carrie and Kevin, to a well-known producer named John Avnet who may be in a better position to help them. Carrie and Kevin showed up. So I put it in the machine and looked at it. I was really, really interested in what I saw. I think I might have looked at it one more time. I saw a sincerity in his reaction to it because he wasn't gushing. He, he, he didn't have any, any kind of sales pitch that, that, that would make you um, suspicious. It was a very, I think, measured response to it, but a very positive response in the sense that I think that he saw something there that I'm not even sure he quite knew what what it was after we watched the tape he he, he asked what 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 I wanted and and I said I just want to finish my film and he said I, I think we can do that we never showed it to anybody else He's, he saw it and he said uh, don't show this to anybody else and we didn't and uh, so that's how that all came together that first meeting in John's office was uh, the result of Marsha Oglesby, who went to college with my wife. That was the connection. They were friends. 
Of course, all the slickest effects in the world would crumble if you didn't believe the characters inhabiting these places, and John Abnett had just the actors in mind for the job. Shortly after finishing the script, we started discussing cast, and I had a prior relationship with Jude Law, and I mentioned Jude as a uh, possible sky captain, and Carrie, in his inimitable manner, sort of thought I was playing a joke on him. I said, no, no, I think he'd be really great. And what do you think? And Carrie said, well, I think he'd be great as well, but is it a possibility? Is it in the realm of possibility? And I said, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, I know these people. I know Jude. I know his agent, Josh Lieberman, very well. And uh, there's no harm in trying. And Josh arranged for uh, Jude and, and I to meet in Josh's office, and I showed Jude the six minutes. And Jude was very, very excited, very impressed. Had a lot of questions, and uh, I said, this is what we're trying to do. Basically, we're supporting this young filmmaker's vision. Do you want to join in? And he read the script, and I got a message back from Josh, and, uh, and then subsequently spoke with Jude that, yes, he, in fact, wanted to go in. So I said to Jude, uh, here's who I'm thinking for uh, Polly, you know, Gwyneth. You know, you've worked with her. What do you think? And Jude thought, she'd be great. And he was very excited about that. And when I mentioned it to Carrie, Carrie just sort of was like, okay, this joke is continuing for a long time. You know, because he was kind of bowled over by Jude's acceptance of the role and the implications of that. And now the idea that we're going to go after Gwyneth, it was a pretty big deal. When I saw the short film, because Carrie originally had a six-minute short version of him developing the technology and the way in which he was shooting it and when I saw that I thought I'll do it whatever it is you know, I hadn't even read the script and I I was like I'm in you know this is the coolest thing I've ever seen so she read the script and she called and said she wanted to do it and then I spoke with her agent and at that point we basically came up with a you know rough form for what the deal would be and I said okay Carrie you got Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow in your first movie it's a strange kind of phenomenon that kind of like brought them to this project and, and brought us all together. I, I don't, to this day, know what to make of it, and I, and I don't exactly know what they saw that uh, made them take such a, such a leap of, of faith, and, and particularly someone that had never made a film, let alone doing something so unconventional. I will admit, I am not a big fan of Gwyneth Paltrow, but in this movie, she's not only tolerable, she fits the role of feisty reporter Polly Perkins quite well. And with her Veronica Lake blonde hair, she is a good foil for Jude. They're joined later by Angelina Jolie as Commander Frankie Cook. Despite her third build status, Angelina has little more than an extended cameo. Still, when she appears, she really hijacks this movie with her magnetism and swagger. Her hair tucked up under her hat and that black eye patch is really quite striking. You said you love Frankie. Can you explain for people who aren't going to know, sort of, who is Frankie? She's quite the character. <laughs> I just, you know, we all have those characters you identify with, and I love this, this story and the whole, but then I, I, I love this woman who was very, um, you know, she reminded me of these great, I, I'm a big fan of Winston Churchill, and I these great orators and these great, like, leaders in time, and she's certainly like the, the crazy kid's idea of, um, you know, mixed in with some leather and a whole bunch of other things. But she has this, um, you know, I got all these tapes of these old RAF 
pilots and and I'd hear them speak and about what they were speaking about and they had this this great way of talking about their planes and their they and I just I think there's the essence of what that was is just a I loved it and it fascinated me so so that and then she had these secrets as a woman um, as far as the director goes, he's a Kerry, he's a young guy. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Again, you, there must be, you've worked with many directors. Is this something that you would characterize? Kerry is a, um, he's a really genuine artist, and this was this, this wonderful idea that he had, and he's, um, you know, with his history with computers and understanding all of the science of this that we don't understand. And he's a, he's unbelievably good-natured. He is, he is maybe because he is not a typical director, I think we all just found him so honest and charming and, and so just happy to be there on the set and excited about everybody coming together and making this thing that he'd been sitting on for so long and hoping would one day become something. And I think just that too, when you see when you meet somebody who's had a dream and something they've worked on and they never knew if it would become a reality. Um, and you're part of it becoming that reality and you see how grateful they are and how excited they are and how hardworking they are, it's very nice. Way. How do we get past those machines? Take that to me. Five, four, no! I see it. Three, two. We gather that Polly and Joe had a romance a few years ago that ended badly. Frankie may have had a role in that. But now their chemistry renews itself as they work together to find the Mad Doctor's lair. Also featured are Giovanni Ribisi as Guy Captain's Head of Research and Development, Dex Dearborn. And with the permission of his estate, a posthumous performance by Sir Lawrence Olivier. Which makes sense given the nature of the role as the evil doctor, using old shots recycled into a new character. Now, with everyone in place, it's just up to Carrie to finish writing and to direct this feature-length film. What? That's right, direct. His simple home production may have grown into a major studio release with a stellar cast of Hollywood talent, but it's still his movie, and he has to direct it. The day that, that I was supposed to first show up on stage and shoot with Jude and Gwyneth, um, I probably will never forget, in fact. Someone came to get me and told me that they're ready for me. I thought, okay. Um, I walked into this um, soundstage, and I'd never seen so many people in my life. At that moment, they, they literally, like a monster movie, all turned and looked at me. And it was almost as if the, the center parted, and about 100 feet away were Jude and Gwyneth, and then they turned and looked at me. I realized that I, I, they're waiting for me. And at that point in time was probably the most sobering moment in the whole movie where I, I realized, or perhaps didn't realize, what I had gotten myself into. And that was perhaps the most in intimidating gauntlet I had to walk in this whole movie where I realized I had to make it to them. I had to walk through these people and, and start. And along the way, I thought I, I had forgotten everything that, uh, that, that we'd be prepared. I had no idea what I was going to do when I got up there. Oh, how do you begin? And and that is the thing when, when you've never made a film before and you're there ready to shoot a movie and everyone's looking to you to take charge and to kind of do this. What do you say to Jude and Gwyneth as they're sitting there? What are your first words to them? 
that I don't remember. That's thankfully been so blocked out by the trauma that uh, I, I, I won't have to relive it. But at the time, just walking up and kind of to, to get to them and begin the movie, um, that's when you really think about Jude had just finished working with Steven Spielberg. Gwyneth had won an Oscar. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? This is ridiculous. Um, and I, I, never, I never had the urge to turn around and run, but if I was going to, it would have been that moment. Um, and then we started somehow. It's just happened. Um, and every single shot that, 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 that we did that night got easier. And I think it was honestly because Jude and Gwyneth just, they, they, they kind of rescued me like kind of like a stray pup and, and took care of me in a way. I mean, I think that they knew that this was difficult. And as much as they were depending on me to tell them what was around them and make sure that, that what was eventually there would look good and, and wouldn't make them look silly, they were patient enough with me to kind of like, you know, walk me through the steps. I don't quite know what I would have done with other actors because, I mean, I, 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 th that aspect of it, I'll never be able to, get, to be able to repay them for, for, for what they did for me. Okay, I'm back now with a description and an abbreviated movie commentary. Because not only a mystery, Sky Captain has a lot of great action and battles, but I'm only going to play a few scenes that are key to the plot. Now what needs to be described is the style of this film. Sky Captain is as much a cinematic experience as it is an adventure. It was the first major motion picture to be shot completely on blue screen. This is the film that brought this medium into vogue. Later movies such as Sin City, 300, and The Spirit were all influenced by Sky Captain in this respect. However, Carey stated that he only used this technique out of necessity, not intending to create a whole new genre. He takes us on a voyage around the world that is between full color and sepia tone. The movie strives for a richness and yet a distant nostalgic quality of an old photograph. And being shot in digital video, the Blu-ray version looks great. One last thing is before we get started on the commentary, this film has been out for eight years. There are definitely spoilers ahead, so if you've been meaning to see it, just hit pause. Then come on back and join us when you're done. Okay now, for the rest of yous, just buckle up and keep those arms and hands inside this ride at all times. All right, rehearsal up, ready, and action, please. As the movie opens on a chilly New York evening, through the clouds, a zeppelin the size of an ocean liner glides to a halt and docks at the top of the observation deck of the Empire State Building. The new arrivals are disembarking, and one passenger, a visibly worried German scientist, stops a ship's steward for one last errand to send a package and a telegram to a colleague in the city. And the game's afoot. The following day at the city newspaper, the presses are rolling out a banner headline of Hindenburg III arrives at New York. And a more telling story further down the page exclaims, Police seek missing scientists. 
an ongoing investigation, two others have disappeared in as many months, with a byline by Polly Perkins. At her desk, Polly receives a mysterious message for a meeting at the Radio City Music Hall with someone who claims to know more about these kidnappings. They didn't leave a name. Said it was important. Thank you. On her way out, Polly grabs her camera and is stopped by her editor with a word of caution. <clears throat> I don't like this business you're getting yourself into. I'll be just fine, Mr. Paley. You know what a careful girl I am. I move my mouth, words come out, you don't hear. I'm late for a movie. I don't like it when you smile at me. You don't like my smile? I don't like what's behind it. Listen, Polly, six scientists are missing, probably dead. Now, somebody out there means business. I don't want you in the middle of it. That's only a movie, Mr. Paley. I'll bring you some popcorn. Discreet meetings in movie theaters are very cloak and dagger. And the choice of The Wizard of Oz that was released that year adds a certain nostalgic charm. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We must be over the rainbow. You sent me this. Who are you? What's this all about, Mr... Doctor. Dr. Walter Jennings. I'm a research chemist. Carrie wanted to use Snow White for this scene in the theater, but couldn't get permission from Disney. Would have made sense. Snow White did have seven dwarfs, and this movie has seven scientists. I have a deadline to meet, Doctor. I was one of seven scientists chosen to serve in a secret facility stationed outside of Berlin before the start of the First World War. It was known only as Einheit Elf. Unit 11, we agreed never to discuss what went on behind those doors. The things we were made to do there. Terrible things. I shouldn't have come. Oh, I, I know we're not in Kansas. Are you a good witch? Doctor, you said you knew who was next. Yes. Don't you see? There is only one left. Who? Who is it, Doctor? Me. He's coming for me. Who? Who's coming? Dr. Kopf. It's Dr. Kopf. As she turns to leave, Polly finds a clue. It's a blueprint that Dr. Vargas had just dropped. And like Dorothy, Polly's adventure is just beginning. Polly runs out to the street and sees police setting up barricades. She dashes to a corner payphone to call her editor. Editor Paley. Mr. Paley, it's me. Polly. Polly, what's going on? They're calling for Midtown to evacuate. Listen, Mr. Paley, I don't have much time. I need you to dig up anything you can on a Dr. Walter Jennings and someone named Totenkopf, an address, a phone number, anything you can find is important. Totenkopf? Who is he? 
I think he may have something to do with the missing scientist. Please, you can. Polly, listen to me. I want you to get out of there. I want you to put the phone down, close your notepad, and get that cat out of there. Wait a minute. I can see something now coming into sight above the Palisades. They're crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. They're a hundred... They're a hundred yards away. Hey, now, wait a minute. That line sounds familiar. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. Fifth Avenue, a uh, hundred yards away. It's, it's 50 feet. Yep, you guessed it. That was right out of the original radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. Carrie, being a huge sci-fi nerd, has peppered this movie with lots of little audio and visual tributes. The approaching mechanical menace looks just like the flying robots from the 1941 Superman short, The Mechanical Monsters. Superman. These 30-foot-tall armored robots are kicking over cars and crushing everything in their path. But help is on the way. Emergency protocol 90206, calling Sky Captain. Come in, Sky Captain. Repeat, calling Sky Captain. Come in, Sky Captain. This is an emergency protocol, 90206. Calling Sky Captain. Sky Captain, do you read? Calling Sky Captain. Come in, Sky Captain. This is an emergency protocol, 90206. Calling Sky Captain. Sky Captain, do you read? Repeat, calling Sky Captain. Come in, Sky Captain. This is Sky Captain. I'm on my way. Flying his tricked-out P-40 fighter plane, Joe Sky Captain Sullivan, a freelance fighter pilot for Truth and Justice, zooms his plane in and out of the city canyons, flying interference for Polly to escape, and with some nifty James Bond-type gadgets, turns the robots back. And soon, we find the extent of these attacks as newspaper headlines from around the world exclaim similar news. Further details of the attack continue to pour in. The central portion of the city is blacked out from radio communication due to damaged power lines and electrical failure. Cables received from English, French, and German news agencies now confirm the attack was not limited to the city. The BBC is reporting that a steel mill in Nuremberg was virtually excavated by what witnesses describe as a mechanized tornado. News agencies in Paris and Madrid speak of strange burrowing machines rising from the ground, robbing entire communities of their coal and oil reserves. Meanwhile, with military resources stretched thin across the globe, world leaders must once again... Back at the airfield, Joe's top scientific engineer, Dex Dearborn, is perfecting a very lethal looking ray gun that has just melted a hole through a five inch solid steel plate. The main hangar doors open and he sees one of the damaged robots from the city arrive on two semi tractor trailers. I thought you said this thing was big. Can I have it? 
You find out where it came from and I'll buy you one for Christmas. I need to show you something. I recorded the signal just before the first machine appeared. I didn't think anything of it until I played it back. With a little electronic snooping, they may have a lead on its source. Morse code? Yeah, see, that's what I thought at first, but the syntax is more complex than that. There's a subcarrier hidden in the lower frequency. I think it's being used to control them. If it shows up again, could you track it? I can try, yeah. Good boy, Dex. Thanks. In the meantime, see what you can do with that thing. Find out what makes it tick. You don't mind, do you? I don't mind. I want to know where it comes from, Dex. Who sent it here? Moments later, back in his office, Joe is startled and draws his gun out of shadow to find Polly, who has been waiting for him. These two seem to have a history together and still on bad terms begin quarreling. Though uninvited, Polly has a lead of her own, the blueprint, and wants to make a deal. Tommy H. How you been, Joe? Miss me? Get out. Well, it's nice to see you, too. Dex said you might be in a mood. Dex, get in here. It's been three years, Joe. You're not still mad at me, are you? Can't even remember what we were fighting about. You sabotaged my plane. Right. I spent six months in a Manchurian slave camp because of you. They were going to cut off my fingers. Joe. For the last time, I didn't sabotage your damn airplane. Also, you could get a photograph of Tojo Hideki in his bathrobe, remember? You know, I'm starting to think that you've invented this whole sabotage nonsense to cover the fact that you were running around on me with your little mystery girl the whole time we were in Nanjing. Never happened. All in your imagination. Who was she, Joe? What was her name? That's enough. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Shoot me? Oh, great, we all made up. It's been a pleasure, Polly. Let's do it again in 10 years. Escort Miss Perkins off the base, Dex. If she resists, shoot her. Hi, Polly. Hi, Dex. I got it. It's okay, hon, I know. Okay. It's just as well. I guess you wouldn't have been interested in this anyway. Where did you get that? There's more where this came from. Lots more. <laughs> I want that blueprint, Polly. I want this story, Joe. You're gonna help me get it. Warning, incoming exposition. When Joe agrees to her terms, Polly fills him in on what she knows. A man came to see me today, a scientist. He was terrified, said someone was coming for him. I asked him who he was so afraid of and he repeated one name, Totenkopf. He nearly went white when he said it. Totenkopf, who is he? He's the invisible man. I've been through every library record twice looking for anything. I've called every contact I have from Paris to Bangkok. This is the only thing I could dig up. He ran some kind of secret science unit outside of Berlin before the start of World War I, something called Unit 11. It's been more than 30 years since anyone's spoken his name until today. Note the insignia he used for the unit. It matches the markings on all of these machines. 
a scientist. Where is he now? We're in this together, right, Joe? Nothing gets published until I say so. You don't write a sentence or take a photograph without asking me first, understood? Understood. Polly's lead takes them to the ransacked laboratory of Dr. Jennings. Joe discovers the killer, a mysterious woman, played by Bai Ling, searching Dr. Jennings' office and tries to stop her. Though she's pretty small, this mysterious woman wipes the floor with Joe every time they meet, and this scene has some pretty good wire work. She leaps from the floor to the top of a bookcase, then as Joe tries to stop her, knocks him across the room. She also carries an electric staff that shoots lightning bolts. Meanwhile, Dr. Jennings, near death, gives Polly two vials, which he says are crucial to Dr. Tutankoff's plans. Polly slips them into her pocket and withholds this information from Joe. They return to Joe's base, which comes under attack from a squadron of ornithopter drones. These are fighter planes with flapping wings. They look pretty cool, and like the other robots, are remote controlled. Dex manages to track the origin of the control signal, but he's captured. However, he leaves behind a part of a map marking the location of Tutankoff's base. Joe and Polly find it, and, in Joe's plane, head to Nepal. This movie uses some really cool graphics from back in the day, and in this one we see them flying over a big map with grid lines. I'll be all right, Joe. Dex can look after himself. We'll find him. Before venturing into the Himalayas, Joe consults with his old friend and local guide named Kaji, who knows the mountains well. My old friend Joe. So glad to see you again. It's good to see you too, Kaji. This is Polly Perkins. She'll be coming with us. Nice to meet you. Let's track the signal to here. This valley north of Karakal. This is where the transmission originated. Why is there no writing here? What is this place? Shambhala. You know it? It is forbidden. It's said to be the source of the Kala Chakra, Tibetan magic. Those who live there are said to have supernatural powers. You can get us there, Kaji, can't you? No one has ventured this far. It's very dangerous. Shambhala is said to be protected by the priests okay, of the Kala Okay, I can't resist. Everyone is here. Us there. They will kill us. Why? Why is this place so special? Shambhala is known by many names. To the Hebrew, it is Eden. To the ancient Greek, it was Empurius. You may know it as Shangri-La. A storm is coming. If you still wish to go, we must go now. I need to send a message. Editor Paley, this may be the last message you've received from me. We've tracked a radio signal to Nepal in search of Dr. Totenkopf. The story grows stranger at every turn. Clues about a countdown, but to what, I don't know. 
I fear time is running out. With any luck, I'll be back soon with Dex and the story. I hope. Polly Perkins. What is it? Looks like a mining outpost. Something bad happened here. Heading further into the mountains, the small group discovers an abandoned mining outpost. Two of the guides turn out to be working for Totenkopf, forcing Polly to turn over the vials, and then locking her and Joe in a room full of explosives, which they liked. Goodbye, my friends. The journey ends here. Carrie's original idea was to create a seven-chapter serial, and this was one of the cliffhangers. At the last possible moment, Joe, Polly, and Kaji escape, running out of the mine, but are knocked unconscious by the explosion. They wake up together in the mythical Shangri-La. The monks there tell of Totenkopf's enslavement to their people, forcing them to work in the uranium mines. Most were killed by the radiation but a final survivor who is suffering from radiation poisoning provides a clue to where Kotentoff is hiding. He wants to know why. Why do you seek Totenkov? To make him pay for what he has done. His staff. He's asking for his staff. He says, follow Rana. The staff will lead you there to Totenkov. Rana, is there such a place? He says, now that he has helped you, you must help him. Of course, anything. Mm. What do you want? markings on it like a ruler. There's a moon and a star. And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. Do you know the one? All I ask is a tall ship. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! A star. He wasn't talking about a place. He was talking about a star. Rana is a star. Ancient sailors used to navigate by using the night sky. They could determine their position by the moon and the stars. The Vikings were known to create maps for certain stars, latitude tables that required a key to decipher them. The key was called Jacob's Star. This has to be the key. You mean this could really work? You could really find Tartankov with this thing? We do things a little different nowadays. All we needed to know was where to look. What's the date? March 2nd. March 2nd. Using Caracol Plateau as our assumed position. 
Rana is at latitude 20.40. Right ascension, 03 hours, 43 minutes. Declination, minus 10.60. There's nothing there. Are you sure you did it right? I'm sure. The old man was right. That's where Tottenkopf is now. Dead center in the middle of nowhere. What's that point there? That's where we run out of fuel. All right. How do we get there? Frankie. Who? Frank Cook, an old buddy of mine. Runs a mobile reconnaissance outpost for the Royal Navy. If I can get a message to them, I may be able to arrange a rendezvous at these coordinates. And what if they don't get the message? Frankie's never let me down. They'll be there. They'll be there. This leads them to another of Joe's ex-flames, Commander Frankie Cook, who commands a Royal Navy flying aircraft carrier with submersible aircraft. I'd like to take a moment just to say, this is really cool. Frankie's mobile reconnaissance platform is a bit smaller and much more retro than the Avengers helicarrier, but at the same time, it's pretty awesome. You can hear its four big rotors in the background of this next clip. Joseph Sullivan. I was sure you'd be dead by now. <laughs> it's good to see you too, Frankie. This had better be important, or one of us is in trouble. It's important. <laughs> what is that? You be nice. Commander Cook. Polly Perkins. Polly Perkins. I've heard so much about you. It's a pleasure to finally meet the competition. It's been a long time since Nanjing, hasn't it, Joseph? <laughs> Burn. So, Frankie, I hear you've been having trouble with that number three engine, or at least you were last time. Come on. We're tracking six enemy submersibles bearing 30 degrees northwest. Who wants to kill you now? As they approach, they come under attack from the island below, and Frankie has a plan. We've lost power to the forward rotors. We're losing altitude. All engines reverse full. Get us out of here. Francesca, you've got to get me on that island. I'm not about to risk the lives of my men for one of your silly antics. He's got decks. Rescind order. You'll never make it from the air. Let's find another way. On the eastern face of the island. It's too deep. We're not rated past 300 meters. But this area here, there's an undersea inlet at the southern tip, and it runs beneath the entire length of the island. That is your only way in. Everything else is sheer rock to the edge of the water. What about those machines? How do we get past them? Leave that to me. Alert the amphibious squadron. 
Frankie leads the attack. Her squadron launches their fighter planes from the carrier and takes the fight underwater to do battle and clear the way for Joe and Polly to enter the guarded underwater inlet. Carrie has placed a few more Easter eggs on the ocean floor to keep an eye out for, and the venturer from King Kong is one. After surfacing, they find themselves on an island with dinosaur-like creatures stupid camera anyway. You gave it to me. You don't even remember, do you? You were flying with the American volunteers in Nanjing. I was covering the evacuation of Shanghai. I remember. Joe, I want to ask you something and I want you to tell me the truth. I don't care one way or the other, I swear. I just need to know. The girl in Nanjing was Frankie, wasn't it? Polly. How long were you seeing her? Look me in the eyes. I never fooled around on you. Never. I sabotaged your plane. Three months. I knew it! I can't believe I ever trusted you, you lousy... He's here. They head to a mountain to find a secret underground facility where robots are loading animals two by two into a large Noah's Ark rocket. One detail worth mentioning here is that early on, Polly had lost all of her extra film for her camera when they escaped from the exploding mine. And as sort of a running gag during the movie, she has been saving her last exposure for something really spectacular to print with her story when she returns to the paper. Joe, it's an ark. He's building an ark. What are you doing? You honestly think you're going to find something more important than every single creature on Earth being led two by two inside a giant rocket ship? I might. Like what? I'll know when I see it. They've started a countdown. We have to find Totem Comfort. Joe and Polly are detected and nearly killed. Dex, piloting a barge, arrives in the nick of time with three of the missing scientists. Dex has learned that Tutankhoff has given up on humanity and seeks to start the world over again, the world of tomorrow. After the rocket lifts off and at high altitude, when its second stage ignites, the Earth will be incinerated. They accidentally discovered that the door to Tutankhoff's lair is booby-trapped, as one of the scientists with them, who is played by Jude Law's father, is the first to step through and is horribly incinerated by the defense system, collapsing in a pile of bones. Doctor, stop!
holograph of Tutankhamun, Laurence Olivier, appears and speaks. Who dares come before me? Who dares enter this place? What is begun cannot be stopped. The time for this world is over. Hello, Doctor. Why are you doing this? I have been witness to a world consumed by hatred and bent on self-destruction. Watched as we have taken what was to be a paradise and failed in our responsibilities as its steward. I know now that the course the human race has set for itself cannot be changed. I am the last desperate chance for a doomed planet. Now leave this place for God. While the Spectre monologues, Dex disables the defenses. Joe asks if it's safe to enter, and Dex responds they should try again. Is it safe? Well, there's only one way to find out. Joe and Polly together now step on the threshold. I meant throw something. The group searches the large, dusty office, only to find Totenkopf's mummified corpse. They discover he's been dead for 20 years now, but his machines have continued and carried on his work. In his hand is a scrap of paper reading, Forgive me. Now, the only way to sabotage the rocket is from the inside. Which will ignite the fuel line before the booster engines can fire and destroy the atmosphere. That's it. That's all I have to do. The terminal's on board the rocket. You won't have time to escape. Contact Frankie as soon as you're off the island. She'll know exactly what to do. Polly protests and tries to tag along. But in classic style, Joe kisses her and then knocks her out with a right cross as he prepares to sacrifice himself so the others can escape. What are you talking about? I'm going with you. Not this time. We had a deal. You're not going to leave me now, just when things are getting interesting. I won't let you. I wish we had more time. And I only hope one day you can forgive me. Take care of her, Dex. Good luck, Cap. When I consider this scene, it brings to mind a lyric from David Bowie's Young American. A lament of sorts, but I digress. Polly recovers and follows Joe, arriving just in time to save him from the mysterious woman, who turns out to be a robot. She's a machine. And then, I might add, Polly gives as good as she got. <laughs> Ten seconds to lift off. Nine. The two board the rocket. Before it reaches its second stage firing, Polly pushes an emergency button that ejects all the animals in escape pods. Joe tries to disable the rocket, only to be interrupted by the same tenacious, mysterious woman, Robot. He jolts her with her electric weapon, and then uses it on the controls, disabling the rocket. 
Why won't you die? They use the last escape pod to save themselves as the rocket safely explodes. Well, Joe and Polly are watching the animal pods splash down all around their escape pod. One shot. Got your story. Polly then uses the last shot on her camera to take a picture of Joe. Polly. You It's alright, you don't have to say anything. Lens cut. Well, there you go. After six years of development and production, on top of the initial four years, Sky Captain cost over $60 million and was released in September of 2004. It promptly crashed and burned, grossing less than half of its production and marketing costs. It's a shame that Steven Spielberg's name wasn't on this film, not because he's a better director than Carrie, he is but without changing even a single frame of this film, it would have gotten the attention that it deserved. Another casualty of the film's commercial failure is the music. This triumphant score sounds like the best John Williams has done in ages, except it was done by Edward Schumer. Again, a fate narrowly rescued from the jaws of victory. And finally, when asked about his experience, Carey remarked, I think the whole process has been something of a miracle, and I'm thrilled that I got a chance with what we created, but I'm still pretty much the same schlubby guy who wouldn't leave his apartment. What has changed most, he says, is that the digitally enabled world of today is almost certain to be kinder to other Kerry Conrans. I think there's just so much opportunity for people now. The current tools are really quite sophisticated, pretty amazing. And well, if I can do it, anyone can do it. In a lullaby.
Little blue birds fly. 